A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a delicious selection of our reporting and analysis from this week. I'm Kenneth Couquier, senior editor at The Economist, and on our menu this week, why cities should respect street food vendors. China's football season is greeted with grumbles, and how the business model of the Olympics is running out of puff. But first, on the rise was our covered line this week. The past decade has been marked by a series of false economic dawns for the global economy, but this time it really does feel different. Our cover leader argued. Today, almost 10 years after the most severe financial crisis since the Depression, a broad-based economic upswing is at last underway. In America, Europe, Asia, and the emerging markets, for the first time since a brief rebound in 2010, all the burners are firing at once. Indeed, the bellwethers of global activity are headed in the right direction. In February, South Korea, a proxy for world trade, Notched up export growth above 20 percent. Taiwanese manufacturers have posted 12 consecutive months of expansion. Even in places inured to recession, the worst is over. But behind this promising news lurks a souring political mood. A populist rebellion, nurtured by years of sluggish growth, is still spreading. Globalization is out of favor. An economic nationalist sits in the White House. While economic prosperity should be celebrated, the risk now is that the reasons behind it are clouded. If populist politicians win credit for a more buoyant economy, their policies will gain credence with potentially devastating effects. So, what lies behind the global upturn then, and how should the world work to entrench it? Find out in this week's issue, complete with an in-depth briefing on the state of the world economy. We now head to China, where the start of this year's top-flight soccer season has been met more with grumbles than cheers. Clubs across the country are trying to bring in more foreign players, but the government is starting to put up red cards. Managers of its 16 clubs have been gnashing their teeth at a change of rules, which was suddenly announced just a few weeks before the first matches. Teams are now allowed to field a maximum of three foreigners. And the clubs probably would have preferred a little bit more notice, having just shelled out vast sums to import more of them. Last year, China spent more than $450 million on footballers, the fifth largest such outlay by any country. While this may boost regional teams, the party has started to manage the outflow of cash to try to improve the national one. Officials have also been trying to curb the buying of stakes in foreign clubs. Chinese investors shelled out about two billion dollars on them last year. The government says this is part of an economy-wide clampdown on currency outflows, but it also wants to make the point that foreign talent won't necessarily help China's. So unfairness may be the sentiment spreading around China's stadiums, and over in Thailand, a sour feeling is running through the bustling streets too. Southeast Asian cities and street food go together like rice with stewed pork shanks, but authorities are waging war on hawkers, and our Banyan columnist took more than a pinch of umbrage at this. 
Writing in the pages of our Asia section this week, he called upon authorities to reconsider. We start with some reporting from the streets of Bangkok. The taxi driver parks in the way a drunkard falls asleep, suddenly with little regard for his surroundings. He leaps from his cab, eyes alight with anticipation, striding toward Jay Day. She shouts at him, pointing at the bucket of bones at her feet. You're late, all finished. The cabbie, who has the gelled hair, tinted aviator glasses and raspy voice of a low-level mafioso from New Jersey, staggers backwards as though he's been shot. I've been coming here for ten years. You didn't save any for me. Miss Jade's mock-stern look collapses into merriment. She points him towards the nearest table, handing him a plate of rice and a bowl of braised pork. He helps himself to a couple of chilies and a coriander frond, keeping up a steady patter with Miss Jade and her husband Sue Kit. This colorful scene is a familiar portrait of life around much of the world. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, 2.5 billion people eat street food daily. The most recent study available from 2007 found that Bangkok's 20,000 vendors provided residents with 40% of their food. Two-thirds of households ate at least one meal a day on the street. But despite this crucial role, trouble looms for the vendors. Local officials have decided to bar them from the footpath on the grounds that they impede pedestrians, make a mess and attract vermin. And our columnist, hungry for answers, found other regional examples. Authorities in Ho Chi Minh City are moving vendors away from congested areas and advising them on more stable ways to make a living. A similar drive is underway in Jakarta. Our correspondent hoped that authorities would think hard about the role of street food vendors as part of the social fabric of society. There is a reason food trucks have begun to populate the streets of American and European cities. Not everyone wants the formality of a restaurant, much less the anomie of a sandwich at a desk. But of course, no offense intended if that is what you're doing right now listening to this podcast. Now, most of us get fed up with our banks, at least occasionally. But even if we do, switching to another bank seems like too much of a hassle. Now, help is at hand from Europe's banking regulators. On our Money Talks podcast this week, our correspondent explains how a new regulation, the uninspiringly named PSD2, can help. The aim of of the regulators is to to level the playing field and and allow fintech companies um, a greater chance of accessing customer data. Under the changes, banks will be obliged provided the customer consents to share transaction information with fintech companies. To find out what this means for both consumers and banks, have a listen to the rest of our Money Talks podcast. We head now to our business section, which explored the mixed economic success of the Olympics. The games still crisscross the globe, but with city after city ditching ambitions to host the event, the model is under threat, as an article explained. The latest blow comes courtesy of Budapest, which on March 1st withdrew its bid to host the 2024 Summer Games after public opposition. Its retreat comes on the heels of Boston, Rome and Hamburg, canning their bids within the past two years, whittling a once-crowded pool of candidate cities down to only two. Los Angeles itself a replacement for the torpedoed Boston bid, and Paris. Mon Dieu! 
So what's causing all the frontrunners to pull out? It could be financial. A study in 2016 from the University of Oxford's Said Business School found that from 1960 to 2016, when data were available, the average cost overrun of hosting the Games was 156%, the highest of any mega-project. And although offers are still pouring in from zealous corporations... Comcast, the parent company of NBC Universal, an American television company, paid a whopping $7.75 billion for exclusive broadcast rights to the Games from 2022 to 2032. If nobody hosts the Games, that's really quite a hurdle. The IOC has been here before. Interest in hosting the five-ringed circus waned in the 1970s after a series of games tainted by terrorist attacks, crippling debt and boycotts. Los Angeles was the sole bidder for the 1984 event. Peter Uberoth, the businessman heading its bid, ripped up the taxpayer guarantee and imposed Spartan conditions, such as housing athletes in university dormitories. The Games turned a profit for the city of $215 million. So could reform save the day again? The really radical answer would be to designate one or a few permanent host cities so that the Olympic sports infrastructure has a life beyond the extinguishing of the Olympic flame. What do you think? Should the torch return permanently to Mount Olympus from whence it came? Let us know by emailing us at radio at economist.com. We return now to taste our other podcasts, heading to our science and technology show, Babbage, which I actually host. This week, we discussed a cluster of mysterious radio signals that have been making waves in the scientific community. Could they really be sent by space aliens? Here's our science correspondent, Tim Cross, weighing up the evidence. It's interesting. If you look through the history of astronomy, you know, this isn't the first time we've wondered if we might be seeing aliens. And every time, these things have turned out to be something natural. So probably this will be something natural as well. But if you take seriously what we think we're starting to learn about what the universe looks like, then maybe aliens shouldn't be the top of your list. But I think it's intellectually honest to not rule them out either. That was an excited Tim Cross discussing the possibilities that mysterious space signals came from space aliens. And for our final piece of intellectual stimulation, we turned to our books and art section, where we reviewed a new book explaining just why humans are so exceptional. The answer, our imagination. Of the millions of animal species on Earth, only one has built a spaceship and flown to the moon. In The Creative Spark, Agustin Fuentes, an anthropologist at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, argues that it is the power of imagination more than anything that has made humans unique among the planet's beasts. This is a rather contentious claim, as our reviewer explained. Man's distinctiveness has been attributed to an aptitude for violence, exceptional intelligence, or a preternatural ability to cooperate. The author, Mr. Fuentes, believes that these theories just don't quite add up. Instead, he turns to niche construction, a relatively recent idea in evolutionary science that emerged in the 1980s, but one which, he says, can offer the basis of a more complete account of humanity's ingenuity. It's what we do with what we're given that really matters. The ecological niche that an organism occupies 
is the sum total of all the interactions that it has with its environment. Altering that environment, as beavers do when they build dams, for example, is niche construction. Humans, Mr. Fuentes says, are niche constructors extraordinaire. Quite right. No beaver has flown to the moon, has it? Well, we'll leave the rest of this to your imagination, I'm afraid, because that's the end of this week's tasting menu. Don't forget, you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue of The Economist and find out about our other podcasts online. Please do keep sending your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. If you like the contents of The Economist, please consider subscribing and be sure to rate our podcasts. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>